We're going to read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 this morning. Think about the sovereign God that blessed his church, his people, with all these things. God knows how to bless his own. Read with me, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself, according to the kind intention of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. In all wisdom and insight he made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his kind intention, which he purposed in him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in the heavens and things upon the earth. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who was given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, to the praise of his glory. Let's pray. Father, it is so wonderful to consider the inheritance that we have, as we heard from our brother Don this morning, about some of the things that he's facing and that we too face as we watch our uh, our short lives go by and these fleshly bodies decay. Father, what a joy it is to know that we have an inheritance with you, Lord. We think about the things that are ahead for those who love you and are called according to your purpose, Father. What a wonderful and bright future we have. Help us to come to know you better, to appreciate you more to see your glory more clearly as we think about the wonderful things that you've done and that you reveal to us through your apostle in this book. In Jesus' name, amen. Good morning. I was going to begin this morning with an illustration that I came up with. I thought it was a pretty good illustration. But then I realized, I hope by the Spirit's prompting through his word, that God had a better one that he had already provided a real-life story in the Old Testament that makes the point way better than my made-up story did. So mine ended up in the outtakes. I'm going to go to Daniel chapter 2 to start this morning. If you've got your Bible, open up there. Uh, My brother Gordon shared some great things from Daniel 4 from the same era and the same, pretty much the same setting. In Daniel 2, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar had taken a young man named Daniel and three of his friends from their homes in Judah into captivity in Babylon along with countless other Judahites. Daniel and his young friends were faithful worshipers of the one true God, Yahweh. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't. He was pretty much a faithful worshiper of himself. God had given these four young men a reputation among their captors as men of exceedingly high character and great wisdom. 
One night, King Nebuchadnezzar had a very vivid dream, but he had no idea what it meant. And not knowing what it meant was driving him to distraction. So being the shameless tyrant that he was, he decreed that any wise man in the land who could not reveal both the content of his dream and the the meaning, the interpretation of his dream would be executed. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar was a master of motivation. How would you like it if someone who had the power to order your execution said to you, okay, I've heard that you have wisdom and insight that most people don't, so tell me what I dreamed last night and then tell me what it means, and if you don't, I'll just kill you. None of the pagan wise men in Babylon could come up with either the dream or its interpretation, and the deadline was approaching, And because of their exceptional reputations, Daniel and his three friends were on the wise men list. So they prayed to the God of heaven for compassion. And God answered by giving Daniel a vision of his own. And in that vision, God laid out for him both the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had had and its exact meaning. Daniel did... (laughs) At that point, what we often forget to do when God gives us a merciful answer to one of our prayers, he praised God. In verse 21 of Daniel 2, Daniel said to Yahweh, let the name of God be blessed forever and ever, for wisdom and power belong to him. And listen to this. It is he who reveals the profound and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and power. Even now, you have made known to me what we requested of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Daniel then told one of the king's advisors that he knew the dream and its interpretation, so he was immediately granted an audience with this very, very powerful king. Listen to what Daniel said to King Nebuchadnezzar in verses 27 and following. He said, as for the mystery, the mystery about which the king has inquired, neither wise men, conjurers, magicians, nor diviners are able to declare it to the king. However, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will take place in the latter days. He who reveals mysteries has made known to you what will take place. That's not me repeating myself. That's Daniel repeating himself. But as for me, Daniel said, this mystery has not been revealed to me for any wisdom residing in me more than in any other living man. He wanted to make very sure that Nebuchadnezzar knew where this wisdom came from. And he says, but for the purpose of making the interpretation known to the king, and that you may understand the thoughts of your mind. Then Daniel revealed to Nebuchadnezzar both the dream and its meaning, and the implications of the dream were staggering. Daniel prophesied the rise and fall of the earthly kingdoms that would follow Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom of Babylon that would lead to the rise of the kingdom of God, which would crush and put an end to all of the kingdoms of men a kingdom that would endure forever. The king answered Daniel and said, Surely your God 
is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries since you have been able to reveal this mystery. What a statement from the lips of a pagan king. Surely your God is a God of gods and a Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. Now as we heard this morning (laughs) from chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar was, was a slow learner. He understood something profound at this point, but he very quickly forgot and he reverted back to his own pride and hubris and God had to deal with him again. I don't know if we'll see Nebuchadnezzar in heaven, but his words at the end of chapter 4 are astonishingly true and clear. Nebuchadnezzar understood that only an all-knowing God who sovereignly controls men and nations could have revealed to Daniel what Daniel had just told him. Now I want you to fast forward about 600 years from Daniel's day to Paul's day and to Ephesians chapter 1. In verses 8 through 10, Paul tells us that we, all of us who belong to Jesus Christ through faith in Him, are now in Daniel's shoes. We are in Daniel's shoes. We are the ones to whom and through whom God has revealed the great mystery of the ages. And He's told us a whole lot more than He told Daniel. As Paul lays before us... (laughs) this mountain of our outrageous riches in Christ in verses 3 to 14 of Ephesians 1, there is one particular bit of wealth that makes all the rest of these heavenly blessings in Christ valuable to us right now and transferable to other people. Valuable to us now and transferable to other people. See, being wealthy is really of no value to us now if we have no idea how wealthy we are. And we would never have any idea how outrageously well it is with our souls if we didn't know what God has laid up for us in eternity. If we thought that this life was our best life, If God had not told us where all of this is going, we would grievously misinterpret the temporary but very painful struggles of life under the curse. And we would have nothing to offer to others who were experiencing those same kinds of struggles, which is everybody. But because God has told us where all of this is going, our whole grid for interpreting the things we encounter here and now is revolutionized. We have a strength and an optimism and a purposefulness that we could not possibly have if the mystery had not been revealed to us. And like Daniel, my brother Paul pointed out this morning, we get the amazing privilege of passing on that marvelous revelation to other people who don't yet have a clue about it. So this particular part of the pile of heavenly blessings that we have received through our union with Christ makes all of the others valuable to us right now and transferable to others by the grace and the working of God. My title for this message is The Wealth of Knowing Where All of This Is Going. Brothers and sisters, God didn't have to tell us what He's up to. He could have just said, trust me, I'm God. 
But one of the most astonishing things about God's amazing grace is that He doesn't just say, trust me. He says, I want you to know how well it actually is with your souls because of Jesus. I want you to know where all of this is going. Picking up at the second half of Ephesians 1 verse 8, we read, In all wisdom and insight, God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure. And we've seen that phrase before. That means He delighted in doing this. His good pleasure that He set forth, He displayed in Christ. God made known to us the mystery of His will. But how did we come to know that mystery? How did He make it known to us? 1 Corinthians 2, verses 6 through 10 says this. Paul says, We do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the hearts, the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him. And then listen to verse 10. For to us, God revealed them through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. Things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and have, which have not entered the heart of man. In other words, a mystery. God has revealed to us. And then Paul goes on in that same chapter to explain that the Holy Spirit revealed these God things to us through words. Not words that came from the minds of men, but words that came to men from the mind of the Holy Spirit. Those words that reveal the very mind of Christ to us are the words of the prophets and apostles found in only one place. The Bible. Now here's what we must not miss, beloved. The great mystery to which Paul refers in passage after passage in his letters to the churches is no longer a mystery to us who belong to Christ. To us, the mystery has been unveiled in the Word of God. And it's really important for us to understand that because Christianity is not a mystical faith in which the spiritual knowledge that actually has transforming power for human beings has been given only to a select few gurus who've reached some sort of transcendental level of knowledge and understanding and insight. No, the transforming truths concerning God and man and what God is doing have been handed to us in the form of propositional revelation breathed out by God through His prophets and apostles in words that our minds understand. But make no mistake, the life-giving and transforming truths revealed in the Bible are nonsense and foolishness to those who are perishing to those who persist in suppressing the truth and unrighteousness, shoving the truth under the rug. 
as David Dean showed us from Romans 1 a while back. See that the elusiveness of these truths to the world is not because the meaning of the words in Scripture violates human language. It's because God has blinded the minds of the unbelieving. 2 Corinthians 4.4 4. It is only the friends of God that God lets in on this great mystery. In John 15, verse 15, Jesus said to his disciples on the night that he was arrested, the night before he was crucified in our place, he said, no longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. In the pages of Scripture, our Savior brings every person that He saves into God's war room to see firsthand where God is going with everything that has happened, everything that is happening, and everything of consequence that will happen in the future on this earth and in the heavenly places. God does not leave His children to guess. He's made His plan for the ages known. He's removed all guesswork. So what is this grand plan that God has revealed to us? What is this great mystery of the ages? Where is God taking everything? (laughs) Well, Ephesians 1 verse 10 presents it in one beautifully concise declaration in the second half of the verse. Here's where everything is headed. You ready? To the summing up of all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. The word summing up comes from one really long Greek word, anakephaliosastai. Let's say it together. No, I'm just kidding. It's long enough to be a German word. The prefix ana means again. The root word kephale means head. If you literally put the parts of the word together and just take the meanings of the parts, you come up with this. To again gather together into one head. Now sometimes when you're looking at complex Greek words, you can get in trouble by doing that, by just assembling the uh, the meanings of the individual parts. But here it works beautifully. (laughs) See, that's exactly what God is going to do. That is exactly what God wants us to know that He is going to do. He is going to again gather together into one head all things in Christ, the things in the heavens and the things upon the earth. The again part makes perfect sense in light of the fact that Jesus is the creator of all things. And that's Paul's exact point in Colossians chapter 1, verses 19 and 20. And the verses just before that. He says, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in Him. The, the fullness of what? The fullness of deity, we find out in chapter 2. Fullness of Godness. And through Him to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, were the things on earth or things in heaven. And in the verses just before those, Paul explains why it is that God will reconcile all things to Himself through Jesus. The things in heaven and on earth. And the reason is because Jesus made all things. 
Verses 15 and following say, He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him, by Him, all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through Him and for Him. So if you look at the prepositions, they were all things were created by Him and through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that He Himself will come to have first place in everything. Not just in the church, in everything. The word kephale, or head, that we see in that passage and that we saw in Ephesians 1, 8 through 10, shows up again later in Ephesians 1 in Paul's prayer for the saints. And then it shows up again one more time in Ephesians 4. And in both those instances, it refers to Christ as head of the body of Christ, the church. Chapter 1, verses 22 to 23 of Ephesians says, He, God the Father, put all things in subjection under His, Christ's feet, and gave Him as head over all things to the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills all in all. He gave the one who will be acknowledged one day as head over all things to be head of the church. All things will one day be gathered together in subjection and and submission to this one head, Jesus. But that headship, that headship of Christ is already being put on display in His church. Right here, right now. That's That's the now part of this public display of Christ's headship. Peter O'Brien says that Christ is the starting point for a true understanding of the mystery in this letter as elsewhere in Paul. And and listen to this. He says, there are not a number of mysteries with limited applications, but there is one supreme mystery with many applications. One supreme mystery. That's why I believe in Paul you keep finding the word mystery in the singular. That supreme mystery now beautifully revealed to God's people is that God is going to restore everything in His created order to its original design. The way it was when He first created it. When Jesus first created it. All things will once again be brought together into perfect harmony and perfect oneness of purpose, joyfully submitted to the one by whom, through whom, and for whom they were created. Beloved, that's where all of this is going. So the redemption for which Paul praised God in verses 7 and 8 of Ephesians 1 goes beyond just the forgiveness of our sins. That's huge. But it affects everything. It's a creation-wide redemption. God is buying back, in fact, He bought back for Himself at the cross all that has for a time been alienated, separated from Him. And He started that purchase with the pinnacle of His creation. Us. That actually makes a whole lot of sense. 
What was it that separated the things in heaven from the things on earth in the first place? Our sin. What has to be done away with in order for the things in heaven once again to be reconciled with the things on earth? Our sin. And the curse that God imposed on His creation and on us because of our sin. Those have to be done away with. And what will bring about the undoing of the curse? The end of our sin. Romans 8, verses 18 to 25, an amazing passage, says that creation itself was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of Him who subjected it. That happened when Adam first sinned against his Creator. But why did God curse all of creation when it was man that sinned? I believe God's answer to that question takes us all the way back to Genesis 1, to His purpose for mankind at the very beginning, before the fall. See, God created man to be His agents and image bearers, to do His work His way in His creation as the only created beings who were made like Him. When God cursed mankind, whom He had appointed to manage His creation, He at the same time cursed that which He had given us to manage. He cursed the domain over which He had given us authority, But that curse over all of creation is only temporary. According to Romans 8 verse 20, God subjected His creation to futility in hope. He cursed His creation in hope. Hope of what? Well, He tells us. In hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. So creation and man are bound together at the point of the curse and at the point of the restoration. They are inseparably bound together. God subjected His creation to futility, but never in futility. This may be a surprise to some of you, but the curse is not futile. God cursed His creation very purposefully. He cursed His creation to drive us back to Him. He cursed His creation to drive the managers of His creation back to the Maker. And that is amazing grace. God loves to redeem. The temporary curse is gracious And the God-ordained purpose of that temporary curse is to drive us back to the one who perfectly frees us from the eternal curse, the permanent curse. Just as our separation from God was made creation's separation from God, so the fullness of our restoration to God in Christ will be the restoration of all created things to God in Christ. And beloved, knowing that changes everything about how we interpret and respond to the cursed condition of this world in which we must temporarily live. It changes everything about how we respond to the hardships that we bear living under the curse as we were talking about in the worship this morning as my brother Don shared with us this morning. It changes everything. We know what God is doing and we know where He's going. And that is wealth beyond measure.
And beloved, God would not have us stuff that wealth in a mattress and keep it to ourselves. More about that in just a moment. First, let's talk a little bit about the timeliness of God's plan in Christ. Paul says, starting at the second part of verse 8 in chapter 1 of Ephesians, he says, In all wisdom and insight, He, God the Father, made known to us the mystery of His will according to His kind intention which He purposed in Christ with a view to the administration suitable to the fullness of the times. With a view to the to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times. Now the phrase with a view to shows up here in verse 10 and in verse 14. And in both cases it refers to something that's happened here and now that looks forward to something that will happen in the future. In verses 9 and 10, it refers to God's present revelation to us of his grand plan for the ages that won't fully come to pass until later. Now, it's worth noting that unbelievers see this temporary delay of the fulfillment of God's promises as grounds for having nothing to do with the God of the Bible, don't they? They say, if if God really exists, why isn't he doing something about all of this? There's nothing new about men considering God to be tardy or absent in taking action in his creation. Way back in Isaiah chapter 5, God said, Woe to those who say, let him make speed, let him hasten his work that we may see it, and let the purpose of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come to pass that we may know it. See, they're mocking God. And then he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. See, the people who come to the conclusion that God is absent in His creation are the people who aren't listening to God. They're listening only to themselves. Professing to be wise, men became fools and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God, starting with an image in the form of corruptible man. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. Peter speaks of the very same spirit of evil, prophesying that it was going to rear its ugly head in the last days. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, Peter says, Know this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, and they will say, Where is the promise of His coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. It's the same, the same accusation against God. If you exist, where are you? Why aren't you doing something? Beloved, the world's conception of God is very similar to the conception of God that many Christians have, unfortunately. And that is that God... Many Christians believe that God made promises that He never made and they spend their lives holding Him to those promises that He never made and they spend their lives being disappointed and they never look at the promises that He actually did make. They never look at His actual revealed plan and His real purposes. 
He doesn't say you won't have persecution and distress and famine and nakedness and peril and sword. He doesn't say that you won't have death and life and angels and demons and things present and things to come threatening you at every turn. What he does say is nothing can separate you from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what he promises. And beloved, if you hold him to the promises that he actually made, you will never be disappointed. This world is anxious and demanding. They say if God intends for us to believe that He exists and that He's worthy of our worship, He's going to have to take action on our terms and on our timeline. In other words, we get to tell God how He has to prove Himself to us. And while they say that, they studiously ignore and reject the compelling proof that God has provided throughout the ages, most compellingly in the person and work of Jesus Christ the first time He came to earth. But there are many proofs. This book, beloved, is proof of the existence of God. And if you think that that is some kind of crazy statement, please come talk to me. I would love to defend it. There are many others here who would too. When you know with certainty that things are going to turn out magnificently and stay that way forever... You get to be patient. We live in a world that is filled with despair. The atheists who dominate the scientific community tell us that we're nothing more than star stuff. That things like emotions, will, and soul are nothing more than the elegant effect of a bunch of electrons bouncing around in our brains. They tell us that nothing that's done during our earthly lives really matters much at all because when any man or woman breathes his or her last breath here, that's it. End of soul, end of story. The star stuff is just stuff. But brothers and sisters, we know the truth. And the difference that makes for you and me because God has revealed to us His plan turns darkness into light and it turns despair into joy inexpressible and full of glory. Right now. Right now. By bringing us into His own sacred counsel, God has blessed us with wealth beyond measure. While the world rejects the truth of God because they don't see Him doing things on their terms and on their timetable, We, His redeemed children, rejoice in His gracious purpose for His delay. We don't mind the wait. (laughs) The second Peter 3 says, God is not slow about His promises, some measure slowness. He is faithful. He desires that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know why God is delaying? It's because He's not finished saving people through people. He's not finished saving people through people. He could save everybody that He elected with nothing but a spoken word. But see, there's this thing called agency and image bearing. And you go back to Genesis 1 and it brings us right back to where all this started. God created us to be His representatives in His creation to do His work His way. And when Christ died for us and God brought us to faith in Christ, He restored us to that role. 
We are his agents in his creation. And since his business on earth, since where he is taking all things is to bring all things together, all things together into one head who is Jesus Christ, our job while we're here is to bring along as many people as we can by his powerful working through us. The reason for the delay, beloved, is that God isn't finished saving people through his people. We're eager beyond every possible definition of the word eager to behold the perfect fulfillment of all of God's precious and magnificent promises. That's what Paul says in Romans 8. Hope that is seen is not hope. If one hopes for what he does not see with eagerness, he patiently waits for it. He perseveres and waits for it. We can wait. We can wait. And as we wait, beloved, this wealth of knowledge is wealth that we both bear and share. We bear it in ourselves and among ourselves as the body of Christ. It is the anchor of our souls. And brothers and sisters, we are supposed to be reminding one another of this reality all the time. We're supposed to always be reminding each other of where God is going with everything. And He's brought us into that plan. It's amazing. But it's not just for us. We're supposed to tell others where all this is going. We're the ones who get to act on God's behalf. We get to share the revelation of this astonishing mystery with anyone who will listen. And we get to watch the Holy Spirit work in the hearts of men and women and children as we do. Because, guys, there are some out there whose hearts God has already prepared to hear. And when we tell them what God is up to, they will believe. And their darkness will end. And they'll get to join us in rejoicing with joy inexpressible and full of glory until the day that we stand in the presence of our beloved Savior. They'll know where all this is going like we do. And we'll all know that it's all going to Christ. May His name be praised. Heavenly Father, thank You. Thank You for telling us what You're up to. What incomparable wealth we have in that knowledge. Give us boldness and love to share that wealth with everyone who will listen. We ask it in Jesus' amazing name. Amen.